Part four of Chapter One of Studies in the Psychology of Sex, Volume Two by Havelock Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In religious circles, far from courts and cities, as we might expect, homosexuality was regarded with great horror, though even here we may discover evidence of its wide prevalence. Thus, in the remarkable revelation of the monk of Evesham, written in English in 1196, we find that in the very worst part of purgatory are confined an innumerable company of sodomists, including a wealthy, witty, and learned divine, a doctor of laws, personally known to the monk, and whether these people should ever be delivered from purgatory was a matter of doubt. Of the salvation of no other sinners does the monk of Evesham seem so dubious sodomy had always been an ecclesiastical offence the statute of fifteen thirty three made it a felony and pollock and maitland consider that this affords an almost sufficient proof that the temporal courts had not punished it and that no one had been put to death for it for a very long time past the temporal law has never however proved very successful in repressing homosexuality at this period the renaissance movement was reaching england and here as elsewhere it brought with it if not an increase at all events a rehabilitation and often an idealization of homosexuality an eminent humanist and notable pioneer in dramatic literature nicholas Udall, to whom is attributed ralph royster doyster the first english comedy stands out as unquestionably addicted to homosexual tastes although he has left no literary evidence of this tendency he was an early adherent of the protestant movement and when headmaster of eton he was noted for his love of inflicting corporal punishment on the boys Tusser says he once received from Oodle fifty-three stripes, for fault but small or none at all. Here there was evidently a sexual sadistic impulse, for in 1541, the year of Ralph Royster Doyster, Oodle was charged with unnatural crime, and confessed his guilt before the Privy Council. He was dismissed from the headmastership and imprisoned, but only for a short time, and his reputation, his modern biographer states, was not permanently injured he retained the vicarage of braintree and was much favoured by edward the sixth who nominated him to a prebend of windsor queen mary was also favourable and he became headmaster of westminster school an elizabethan lyrical poet of high quality whose work has had the honour of being confused with shakespeare's richard barnfield appears to have possessed the temperament at least of the invert his poems to male friends are of so impassioned a character that they aroused the protests of a very tolerant age. Very little is known of Barnfield's life. Born in 1574, he published his first poem, The Affectionate Shepherd, at the age of twenty, while still at the university. It was issued anonymously, revealed much fresh poetic feeling and literary skill, and is addressed to a youth of whom the poet declares, If it be sin to love a lovely lad, oh then, sin I in his subsequent volume cynthia fifteen ninety five barnfield disclaims any intention in the earlier poem beyond that of imitating virgil's second eclogue but the sonnets in this second volume are even more definitely homosexual than the earlier poem though he goes on to tell how at last he found a lass whose beauty surpassed that of the swain whom i never could obtain 
after the age of thirty-one barnfield wrote no more but being in easy circumstances retired to his beautiful manor-house and country estate in shropshire lived there for twenty years and died leaving a wife and son it seems probable that he was of bisexual temperament and that as not infrequently happens in such cases the homosexual element developed early under the influence of a classical education and university associations while the normal heterosexual element developed later and as may happen in bisexual persons was associated with the more commonplace and prosaic side of life barnfield was only a genuine poet on the homosexual side of his nature greater men of that age than barnfield may be suspected of homosexual tendencies marlowe whose most powerful drama edward the second is devoted to a picture of the relations between that king and his minions is himself suspected of homosexuality an ignorant informer brought certain charges of free thought and criminality against him and further accused him of asserting that they are fools who love not boys these charges have doubtless been coloured by the vulgar channel through which they passed but it seems absolutely impossible to regard them as the inventions of a mere gallows bird such as this informer was moreover marlowe's poetic work while it shows him by no means insensitive to the beauty of women also reveals a special and peculiar sensitiveness to masculine beauty marlowe clearly had a reckless delight in all things unlawful and it seems probable that he possessed the bisexual temperament shakespeare has also been discussed from this point of view all that can be said however is that he addressed a long series of sonnets to a youthful male friend these sonnets are written in lover's language of a very tender and noble order they do not appear to imply any relationship that the writer regarded as shameful or that would be so regarded by the world moreover they seem to represent but a single episode in the life of a very sensitive many-sided nature there is no other evidence in shakespeare's work of homosexual instinct such as we may trace throughout marlowe's while there is abundant evidence of a constant preoccupation with women while shakespeare thus narrowly escapes inclusion in the list of distinguished inverts there is much better ground for the inclusion of his great contemporary francis bacon aubrey in his laboriously compiled short lives in which he shows a friendly and admiring attitude towards bacon definitely states that he was a pederast aubrey was only a careful gleaner of frequently authentic gossip but a similar statement is made by sir simons dues in his autobiography dues whose family belonged to the same part of suffolk as bacon sprang from was not friendly to bacon but that fact will not suffice to account for his statement he was an upright and honourable man of scholarly habits and moreover a trained lawyer who had many opportunities of obtaining first-hand information for he had lived in the chancery office from childhood he is very precise as to bacon's homosexual practices with his own servants both before and after his fall and even gives the name of a very effeminate-faced youth who was his catamite and bedfellow he states further that there had been some question of bringing bacon to trial for sodomy these allegations may be supported by a letter of bacon's own mother printed in spedding's life of bacon reproving him on account of what she had heard concerning his behaviour with the young welshman in his service whom he had made his bedfellows it is notable that bacon seems to have been specially attracted to welshmen one might even find evidence of this in the life of the welshman henry the seventh a people of vivacious temperament unlike his own this is illustrated by his long and intimate friendship with the mercurial sir toby matthew his alter ego a man of dissipated habits in early life though we are not told that he was homosexual 
bacon had many friendships with men but there is no evidence that he was ever in love or cherished any affectionate intimacy with a woman women play no part at all in his life his marriage which was childless took place at the mature age of forty-six it was effected in a business-like manner and though he always treated his wife with formal consideration it is probable that he neglected her and certain that he failed to secure her devotion it is clear that toward the end of bacon's life she formed a relationship with her gentleman usher whom subsequently she married bacon's writings it may be added equally with his letters show no evidence of love or attraction to women in his essays he is brief and judicial on the subject of marriage copious and eloquent on the subject of friendship while the essay on beauty deals exclusively with masculine beauty during the first half of the eighteenth century we have clear evidence that homosexuality flourished in london with the features which it presents to-day in all large cities everywhere there was a generally known name mollies applied to homosexual persons evidently having reference to their frequently feminine characteristics there were houses of private resort for them molly houses there were special public places of rendezvous whither they went in search of adventure exactly as there are to-day a walk in upper moorfields was especially frequented by the homosexual about seventeen twenty five a detective employed by the police about that date gave evidence as follows at the old bailey i takes a turn that way and leans over the wall in a little time the prisoner passes by and looks hard at me and at a small distance from me stands up against the wall as if he were going to make water then by degrees he sidles nearer and nearer to where i stood till at last he was close to me tis a very fine night says he ay say i and so it is then he takes me by the hand and after squeezing and playing with it a little he conveys it to his breeches whereupon the detective seizes the man by his sexual organs and holds him until the constable comes up and effects an arrest at the same period margaret clapp commonly called mother clapp kept a house in field lane holborn which was a noted resort of the homosexual to mother clapp's molly house thirty or forty clients would resort every night on sunday there might be as many as fifty for as in berlin and other cities to-day that was the great homosexual gala night there were beds in every room in this house we are told that the men would sit in one another's laps kissing in a lewd manner and using their hands indecently then they would get up dance and make curtsies and mimic the voices of women oh fie sir pray sir dear sir lord how can you serve me so i swear i'll cry out you're a wicked devil and you're a bold face eh ye dear little toad come bus they'd hug and play and toy and go out by couples into another room on the same floor to be married as they called it on the whole one gains the impression that homosexual practices were more prevalent in london in the eighteenth century bearing in mind its population at that time than they are to-day it must not however be supposed that the law was indulgent and its administration lax the very reverse was the case the punishment for sodomy when completely affected was death and it was frequently inflicted homosexual intercourse without evidence of penetration was regarded as attempt and was usually punished by the pillory and a heavy fine followed by two years imprisonment moreover it would appear that more activity was shown by the police in prosecution than is nowadays the case this is for instance suggested by the evidence of the detective already quoted to keep a homosexual resort was also a severely punishable offence 
mother clapp was charged at the old bailey in seventeen twenty six with keeping a sodomitical house she protested that she could not herself have taken part in these practices but that availed her nothing she could bring forward no witnesses on her behalf and was condemned to pay a fine to stand in the pillory and to undergo imprisonment for two years the cases were dealt with in a matter-of-fact way which seems to bear further witness to the frequency of the offence and with no effort to expend any specially vindictive harshness on this class of offenders if there was the slightest doubt as to the facts even though the balance of evidence was against the accused he was usually acquitted and the man who could bring witnesses to his general good character might often thereby escape in seventeen twenty one a religious young man married was convicted of attempting sodomy with two young men he slept with he was fined placed in the pillory and imprisoned for two months next year a man was acquitted on a similar charge and another man of decent aspect although the evidence indicated that he might have been guilty of sodomy was only convicted of attempt and sentenced to fine pillory and two years imprisonment in seventeen twenty three again a schoolmaster was acquitted on account of his good reputation of the charge of attempt on a boy of fifteen his pupil though the evidence seemed decidedly against him in seventeen thirty a man was sentenced to death for sodomy effected on his young apprentice this was a bad case and the surgeon's evidence indicated laceration of the perineum homosexuality of all kinds flourished it will be seen notwithstanding the fearless yet fair application of a very severe law in more recent times byron has frequently been referred to as experiencing homosexual affections and i have been informed that some of his poems nominally addressed to women were really inspired by men it is certain that he experienced very strong emotions towards his male friends my school friendships he wrote were with me passions when he afterward met one of these friends lord clare in italy he was painfully agitated and could never hear the name without a beating of the heart at the age of twenty-two he formed one of his strong attachments for a youth to whom he left seven thousand pounds in his will it is probable however that here as well as in the case of shakespeare and in that of tennyson's love for his youthful friend arthur hallam as well as montaigne for etienne de la boetti although such strong friendships may involve an element of sexual emotion we have no true and definite homosexual impulse homosexuality is merely simulated by the ardent and hyperesthetic emotions of the poet the same quality of the poet's emotional temperament may doubtless also be invoked in the case of goethe who is said to have written elegies which on account of their homosexual character still remain unpublished the most famous homosexual trial of recent times in england was that of oscar wilde a writer whose literary reputation may be said to be still growing not only in england but throughout the world wilde was the son of parents who were both of unusual ability and somewhat eccentric both these tendencies become in him more concentrated he was born with as it were a congenital antipathy to the commonplace a natural love of paradox and he possessed the skill to embody the characteristic in finished literary form at the same time it must not be forgotten beneath this natural attitude of paradox his essential judgments on life and literature were usually sound and reasonable his essay on the soul of man under socialism witnessed to his large and enlightened conception of life and his profound admiration of flaubert to the sanity and solidity of his literary taste in early life he revealed no homosexual tendencies he married and had children 
after he had begun to outgrow his youthful aesthetic extravagances however and to acquire success and fame he developed what was at first a simply inquisitive interest in inversion such inquisitive interest is sometimes the sign of an emerging homosexual impulse it proved to be so in wilde's case and ultimately he was found to be cultivating the acquaintance of youths of low class and doubtful character although this development occurred comparatively late in life we must hesitate to describe wilde's homosexuality as acquired if we consider his constitution and his history it is not difficult to suppose that homosexual germs were present in a latent form from the first and it may quite well be that wilde's inversion was of that kind which is now described as retarded though still congenital as is usual in england no active efforts were made to implicate wilde in any criminal charge it was his own action as even he himself seems to have vaguely realized beforehand which brought the storm about his head he was arrested tried condemned and at once there arose a general howl of execration joined in even by the judge whose attitude compared unfavorably with the more impartial attitude of the eighteenth-century judges in similar cases wilde came out of prison ambitious to retrieve his reputation by the quality of his literary work but he left reading jail merely to enter a larger and colder prison he soon realized that his spirit was broken even more than his health he drifted at last to paris where he shortly after died shunned by all but a few of his friends in a writer of the first order edward fitzgerald to whom we owe the immortal and highly individualized version of omar khayyam it is easy to trace an element of homosexuality though it appears never to have reached full unconscious development fitzgerald was an eccentric person who though rich and on friendly terms with some of the most distinguished men of his time was always out of harmony with his environment he felt himself called on to marry very unhappily a woman whom he had never been in love with and with whom he had nothing in common all his affections were for his male friends in early life he was devoted to his friend w k brown whom he glorified in euphranor to him brown was at once jonathan gamaliel apollo the friend the master the god there was scarcely a limit to his devotion and admiration on brown's premature death fitzgerald's heart was empty in eighteen fifty nine at lowestoft fitzgerald as he wrote to mrs brown used to wander about the shore at night longing for some fellow to accost me who might give some promise of filling up a very vacant place in my heart it was then that he met posh joseph fletcher a fisherman six feet tall said to be of the best suffolk type both in body and character posh reminded fitzgerald of his dear friend brown he made him captain of his lugger and was thereafter devoted to him posh was said fitzgerald a man of the finest saxon type with a complexion vif male et flamboyant blue eyes a nose less than roman more than greek and strictly auburn hair that any woman might envy further he was a man of simplicity of soul justice of thought tenderness of nature a gentleman of nature's grandest type in fact the greatest man fitzgerald had ever met posh was not however quite so absolutely perfect as this description suggests and various misunderstandings arose in consequence between the two friends so unequal in culture and social traditions these difficulties are reflected in some of the yet extant letters from the enormous mass which fitzgerald addressed to my dear poshy 
a great personality of recent times widely regarded with reverence as the prophet poet of democracy walt whitman has aroused discussion by his sympathetic attitude towards passionate friendship or manly love as he calls it in leaves of grass in this book in calamus drum taps and elsewhere whitman celebrates a friendship in which physical contact and a kind of silent voluptuous emotion are essential elements in order to settle the question as to the precise significance of calamus j a simmons wrote to whitman frankly posing the question the answer written from camden new jersey on august nineteenth eighteen ninety is the only statement of whitman's attitude towards homosexuality and it is therefore desirable that it should be set on record about the questions on calamus etc they quite daze me leaves of grass is only to be rightly constructed by and within its own atmosphere and essential character all its pages and pieces so coming strictly under that the calamus part has ever allowed the possibility of such construction as mentioned is terrible i am fain to hope that the pages themselves are not to even be mentioned for such gratuitous and quite at the same time undreamed and unwished possibility of morbid inferences which are disavowed by me and seem damnable it would seem from this letter that whitman had never realized that there is any relationship whatever between the passionate emotion of physical contact from man to man as he had experienced it and sung it and the act which with other people he would regard as a crime against nature this may be singular for there are many inverted persons who have found satisfaction in friendships less physical and passionate than those described in leaves of grass but whitman was a man of concrete emotional instinctive temperament lacking in analytical power receptive to all influences and careless of harmonizing them he would most certainly have refused to admit that he was the subject of inverted sexuality it remains true however that manly love occupies in his work a predominance which it would scarcely hold in the feelings of the average man whom whitman wishes to honour a normally constituted person having assumed the very frank attitude taken up by whitman would be impelled to devote far more space and far more ardour to the subject of sexual relationships with women and all that is involved in maternity than is accorded to them in leaves of grass some of whitman's extant letters to young men though they do not throw definite light on this question are of a very affectionate character and although a man of remarkable physical vigour he never felt inclined to marry it remains somewhat difficult to classify him from the sexual point of view but we can scarcely fail to recognise the presence of a homosexual tendency i should add that some friends and admirers of whitman are not prepared to accept the evidence of the letter to simmons i am indebted to q for the following statement of the objections i think myself that it is a mistake to give much weight to this letter perhaps a mistake to introduce it at all since if introduced it will of course carry weight and this for three or four reasons one that it is difficult to reconcile the letter itself with its strong tone of disapprobation with the general atmosphere of leaves of grass the tenor of which is to leave everything open and free two that the letter is in hopeless conflict with the calamus section of poems for whatever moral lines whitman may have drawn at the time of writing these poems it seems to me quite incredible that the possibility of certain inferences morbid or other was undreamed of three 
that the letter was written only a few months before his last illness and death and is the only expression of the kind that he appears to have given utterance to four that simmons's letter to which this was a reply is not forthcoming and we consequently do not know what rash expressions it may have contained leading whitman with his extreme caution to hedge his name from possible use to justify dubious practices i may add that i endeavoured to obtain simmons's letter but he was unable to produce it nor has any copy of it been found among his papers it should be said that whitman's attitude toward simmons was marked by high regard and admiration a wonderful man is addington simmons he remarked shortly before his own death some ways the most indicative and penetrating and significant man of our time simmons is a curious fellow i love him dearly he is of college breed and education horribly literary and suspicious and enjoys things a great fellow for delving into persons and into the concrete and even into the physiological and the gastric and wonderfully cute but on this occasion he delved in vain the foregoing remarks substantially contained in the previous editions of this book were based mainly on the information received from j a simmons's side but of more recent years interesting light has been thrown on this remarkable letter from walt whitman's side the boswellian patience enthusiasm and skill which horace traubel has brought to this full and elaborate work now in course of publication with walt whitman in camden clearly reveal in the course of various conversations whitman's attitude to simmons's question and the state of mind which led up to this letter whitman talked to traubel much about simmons from the twenty seventh of april eighteen eighty eight very soon after the date when traubel's work begins onward simmons had written to him repeatedly it seems concerning the passional relations of men with men as whitman expressed it he is always driving at me about that is that what calamus means because of me or in spite of me is that what it means i have said no but no does not satisfy him there is however no record from simmons side of any letter by whitman to simmons in this sense up to this date but read this letter read the whole of it it is very shrewd very cute in deadliest earnest it drives me hard almost compels me it is urgent persistent he sort of stands in the road and says i won't move till you answer my question you see this is an old letter sixteen years old and he is still asking the question he refers to it in one of his latest notes he is surely a wonderful man a rare cleaned-up man a white-souled heroic character you will be writing something about calamus some day said whitman to traubel and this letter and what i say may help to clear your ideas calamus needs clear ideas it may be easily innocently distorted from its natural its motive body of doctrine the letter dated february the seventh eighteen seventy two of some length is then reproduced it tells how much leaves of grass and especially the calamus section had helped the writer what the love of man for man has been in the past simmons wrote i think i know what it is here now i know also alas what you say it can and should be i dimly discern in your poems but this hardly satisfies me so desirous am i of learning what you teach some day perhaps in some form i know not what but in your own chosen form you will tell me more about the love of friends 
till then i wait said w well what do you think of that do you think that could be answered i don't see why you call that letter driving you hard it's quiet enough it only asks questions and asks the questions mildly enough i suppose you are right drive is not exactly the word yet you know how i hate to be catechized simmons is right no doubt to ask the questions i am just as much right if i do not answer them just as much right if i do answer them i often say to myself about calamus perhaps it means more or less than what i thought myself means different perhaps i don't know what it all means perhaps never did know my first instinct about all that simmons writes is violently reactionary is strong and brutal for no 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 then the thought intervenes that i maybe do not know all my own meanings i say to myself you too go away come back study your own book as alien or stranger study your own book see what it amounts to some time or other i will have to write to him definitely about calamus give him my word for it what i meant or mean it to mean again a month later may twenty fourth eighteen eighty eight whitman speaks to Trawbell of a beautiful letter from simmons you will see that he harps on the calamus poems again i don't see why it should but his recurrence to that subject irritates me a little i suppose you might say why don't you shut him up by answering him there is no logical answer to that i suppose but i may ask in my turn what right has he to ask me questions anyway w laughed a bit anyway the question comes back to me almost every time he writes he is courteous enough about it that is the reason i do not resent him i suppose the whole thing will end in an answer some day the letter follows the chief point in it that the writer hopes he has not been importunate in the question he has asked about calamus three years before i Trawbell said to w that's a humble letter enough i don't see anything in that to get excited about he doesn't ask you to answer the old question in fact he rather apologizes for having asked it w fired up who is excited as to that question he does ask it again and again asks it asks it asks it i laughed at his vehemence well suppose he does it does not harm besides you've got nothing to hide i think your silence might lead him to suppose that there was a nigger in your woodpile oh nonsense but for thirty years my enemies and friends have been asking me questions about the leaves i'm tired of not answering questions it was very funny to see his face when he gave a humorous twist to the fling in his last phrase then he relaxed and added anyway i love simmons who could fail to love a man who could write such a letter i suppose he will yet have to be answered damn him it is clear that these conversations considerably diminish the force of the declaration in whitman's letter we see that the letter which on the face of it might have represented the swift and indignant reaction of a man who suddenly faced by the possibility that his work may be interpreted in a perverse sense emphatically repudiates that interpretation was really nothing of the kind simmons for at least eighteen years had been gently considerately even humbly yet persistently asking the same perfectly legitimate question if the answer was really an emphatic no it would more naturally have been made in eighteen seventy two than in eighteen ninety 
moreover in the face of this ever-recurring question whitman constantly speaks to his friends of his great affection for simmons and his admiration for his intellectual cuteness feelings that would both be singularly out of place if applied to a man who was all the time suggesting the possibility that his writings contained inferences that were terrible morbid and damnable evidently during all those years whitman could not decide what to reply on the one hand he was moved by his horror of being questioned by his caution by his natural aversion to express approval of anything that could be called unnatural or abnormal on the other hand he was moved by the desire to let his work speak for itself by his declared determination to leave everything open and possibly by a more or less conscious sympathy for the inferences presented to him it was not until the last years of his life when his sexual life belonged to the past when weakness was gaining on him when he wished to put aside every drain on his energies that being constitutionally incapable of a balanced scientific statement he chose the simplest and easiest solution of the difficulty end of part four of chapter one recording by john fricker